Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. You can send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. We will do our best to answer them as we engage with our guests. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business, ZDNet, and many other uh, major publications. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists you can follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, contributor to ZDNet. More importantly, one of the top CIO and CMO followers on Twitter. He's definitely influencing tons of folks, but more important is really our guests. We have one of the most influential folks on innovation today. Who do we have, Bala? Ray, it's an honor for us to have the opportunity to talk to Ray Crescenda, former principal engineer of iPhone software for Apple, uh, Ken was with Apple for more than 15 years. He's author of Creative Selection, Insides Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Ken uh, was uh, one of the original uh, engineers on projects like the iPhone, the, the, the iPad, uh, and many other uh, groundbreaking technology from Apple. During more than his 15 years designing innovative uh, software for the company. Kim worked on teams that created, including Safari web browser, again, iPhone and iPad, Apple Watch. He's inventor of the keyboard autocorrect and holds more than 50, that's five zero, 50 patents related to Apple innovation. You can follow Ken on Twitter at K-O-C-I-E-N-D-A. Welcome, Ken, to Disrupt TV. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. <laughs> it is awesome having you here. I, look, I'm an Apple fanboy. Like since 81, I've had an Apple II all the way out. Um, you know, we've got all the devices. I just picked up my, uh, you know, 10S, XS, whatever it's called at the moment, 10S. I picked it up as at the launch uh, at the theater a couple weeks back. Um, but you used a term in this book that is, is very fascinating to me. It was not it was, it was not by accident, it was super deliberate. And I'm wondering why you chose this term creative selection to talk about Apple during its golden age. Right, well, to me, it, it, it encapsulates the way that we approached making products. Uh, whenever we had an idea for a, a new piece of software, a feature, we would, we would make something, we would make a demo or a prototype right away, something concrete that we could try. Uh, something we could show around, something that would generate feedback. You know, because the thing is, those early products, those first, those first prototypes, a lot of times they weren't very good. But once you had something that you could show around and get that feedback, uh, then you could take the next step to figure out, well, what was strong about that demo? What was weak about it? You get, away, you get rid of the weak parts, you build on the strong parts, and then you make another demo, you make another prototype. And, and eventually, uh, the bigger teams get involved, executives get involved. Back in the time of, of the iPhone, Steve Jobs himself would get involved in this long, long process of iteration and improvement. So it, it struck me that the, the, the way that we develop products was a Darwinian process. You know, he, Darwin, Darwin talked about artificial selection, then, then, of course, natural selection. 
And at Apple, yep. it, it, it seemed to me that we had this creative selection process of making the great products from humble beginnings. That's amazing. So Ken, I thought I had a cool title, Chief Digital Evangelist, until I found out that you had a title, Experimental Designer. Yes, yes. Who was that all I've heard? Right, well, yeah, you know, it, it was, um, you know, for, for years I, I worked in the software engineering organization at Apple writing code uh, as my, as my primary, primary job every day. And um, uh, about 12 or 13 years into my career, I actually changed over into the design organization, uh, working with the user experience designers, user interface designers, and, and being one of the first people to take those, uh, those, those ideas, that, that, you know, those flashes of inspiration and trying to put some code against that. And so, yeah, experimental designer was the uh, the title that we came up with. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. It is an awesome title. I mean, it, it just connotates so much in this world of design thinking, where we've actually gone through the process. People are there. I mean, this, this is pre-IDEOS concept. This is early design thinking, D-School. I mean, it's pretty wild. So now, a lot of these concepts came from Steve, just in the way he works. And you work with Steve very closely. Believe it or not, we actually have Wozniak coming to an event we have on the 10th, uh, part of the fun as well. But, but you were there early, right? You got, you got to get inside the mind of Steve Jobs. What was it, right? What was it that made him special to you and to well, everyone else? Yeah, the, the, I, I think the, the, the one word that I would choose to describe Steve was focus. And that, that, that fellow was focused on making great products. That's what he cared about. Now, now the thing was, he was so focused on that at times, uh, uh, you know, social graces kind of got pushed to the side. You know, he could be pretty intimidating. And he had a temper, too. Uh, and, and, and so for me, as, uh, you know, as an individual contributor, uh, you know, he was so interested in seeing what the products were doing that even though I wasn't, uh, you know, a high-level executive in the company, but you know, still, I was you know given the responsibility to come up with these these pretty large product features, and so he was interested in seeing the work from me. And when it came time to show him, a, a, you know, a new piece of work, uh, it it could he could be pretty intimidating because if he didn't like it, but you know, the thing is, if he liked a piece of work that I had done, then. Uh, that was he. He could on on he had, he had the key that could unlock uh, uh, the door to getting that work into an Apple product and getting getting my contribution, my creativity out into the world. So it was this is this, it, but it could be a real roller coaster dealing with with Steve, the ups and the downs, but uh, the 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 pluses in my experience uh, definitely uh, were. Uh, were what were, they, they are what stick out in my memory right now. Absolutely. So you did you develop tough skin before having to demo your innovation to one of the most critical <laughs> and most innovative minds of the 20th century, or or did you develop it along the way? Well, yeah, I I I developed it along the way. It it, it certainly came in handy uh, <laughs> by time I was develop, uh, developing work and showing it to Steve. But you know what I tried to do. Uh, uh, along the way, uh, you know, my, my background really isn't in technology. My, my, my back, I have a history degree uh, in college. That's, that's, that's my only degree beyond high school. 
uh, I, I also uh, uh, did fine art photography for, for many years and, and showed my work to some, some pretty, uh, uh, pretty harsh critics uh, in, in, in art and, 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 and uh, fine art photography. Um, so I found that having that thick skin was, was very valuable and, and, it, and, and, and to use it in a, in, a, in a certain way, to kind of turn that shoulder in a certain way and it goes like this. So once you, while you're doing work, you put all of your emotion into it, but then when it comes right. time to show people, you have to detach. Yeah. You have to be open to the feedback and the criticism because that's what makes work better. And if your goal was like mine to get your work out into the hands of people, millions of people out in the world, well, you're going to want to hear if there are problems right. sooner rather than later. It's better to know while you're still in the design and development labs rather than when the products are out in the hands of people in the world. So, yeah, having that thick skin um, and, and uh uh, being able to stand up to that harsh criticism, I think, is very valuable when you're doing creative. And, and a beginner's mindset. You're open to feedback. You're, you're curious. You're interested. So it's grit, persistence, tough skin, and a beginner's mindset, which I hope all the engineers that are watching or, or business leaders can, can, can take away from that incredible experience that you have. Yeah, you know, it's it, going to this idea that, that iteration is, is such an important part of the process of, of doing great work. Uh, you can't get too hung up on any individual demo or prototype and whether it's good or bad or whether people like it or not because uh, it's, it's always important to keep your eye on the end goal of, of making the great work as the, as, as the end product that you'll be releasing out to people. While you're in the design and development labs, boy, just be open to criticism and feedback, good, bad, or otherwise. That's amazing. You know, makes a lot of sense. And, and, and what you're talking about is a concept we espouse a lot, which is really about digital artisans, bringing the left brain, the right brain together, bringing to people from different disciplines. We actually believe in diversity of disciplines to actually unlock creativity because masters in each discipline approach problems in a different way. So now when yeah, you have some iPhone, did you have, oh, go I, ahead. I'm sorry. We, you know, we had this concept at Apple. It was something that Steve Jobs uh, talked about on stage when he announced the original iPad. It was the intersection of technology and the liberal arts. He even had a, a street sign slide with the crossroads, technology and liberal arts. Uh, creating this intersection. So we absolutely had that at Apple, bringing hardware and software together with design and culture, right? The products needed to be meaningful and useful to people. Uh, and, and, and the way to do that was to, to, to bring the, the best of, of many different disciplines together, many different kinds of thinkers, getting all those people to complement each other uh, as, as, as part of this process of, of the developing this work. That's amazing. So when you worked on the original iPhone, somewhere around 2005 to 2006, that period of time, or even earlier, um, did you have any clue about how revolutionary it would become? <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. No, we really didn't. You know, I, I, I can say that from the moment that I heard that Apple was going to make a cell phone, it was, well, it was, it was one of the real... Uh, 
it was the, one of the points in my career where 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 things just changed. Wow. Uh, it, it was this. It was it was a moment that there was a before and then there was an after, uh, because uh, so so many years of, of of time and effort after that, and and so much time and concentration on making making that that touchscreen operating system and making that making those uh, the, the products work. Uh, that's what I was focused on uh, so so much. Now now the the thing is that even though it was. Uh, that moment for me, that that transformative moment for me, I had no idea that it would be similarly transformative for so many other people out in the world. You know, when you're focused on products, uh, you know, so often, you know, we're focused with, you know, our heads down on the on the latest problem. And once you solve that problem, there's always another problem to look at. And, uh, you know, we didn't really have the idea that it would be a product that would be in the hands of hundreds of millions, perhaps even now a couple of billion people have these, these touchscreen devices with them all the time and are looking at them uh, all the time. Uh, we, we, really did, we did really didn't know that it was going to uh, be as successful and popular as it turned out to be. I guess I suppose we hoped. <laughs> we had no idea that the dream would really come true. I sometimes pull on, awesome. on, on Twitter the most impactful technology of 21st century, whether it's social networking, iPhone, cloud computing. Consistently, iPhone comes in as from the Twitter poll, the most impactful technology of the 21st century. So it's amazing. And in your book, and, I, and you didn't make an analogy to a cake, but if there was eight ingredients of making a delicious cake of innovation, you talked about inspiration, collaboration, craft, diligence, taste, and empathy as part of the ingredients of an of a innovation cake. What are some of the one or two ingredients of, of, of the seven that elements that you mentioned in your book that's, that really identifies the secret sauce of innovation at Apple? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I like to think that all of these elements, there was another one in there that you didn't mention, which is decisiveness. Decisiveness, uh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, decisiveness. You know, and I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, to just pick out, pick out that one. Uh, we always tried to make tough choices as soon as possible. We didn't procrastinate. We didn't delay. You know, we always felt that it was better to make a, a choice right now rather than put things off. So if we had a demo or a prototype that we were looking at, um, it was very clear to us most of the time, almost all of the time, that it wasn't perfect. And you know, if, if work isn't perfect, creative technical work isn't perfect, well, then you've got to decide what to change. If it's perfect, leave it alone. But if it's not perfect, you have to figure out what to change. And so we, we were always willing to, uh, to make that choice on the spot. Go away, do some more work, bring back the next demo and prototype, and then evaluate if the choice was any good. We can always, you know, and if those iteration cycles are short, uh, then you can always undo that, that decision or decide to take another step in that direction. So decisiveness is really, really Sage advice to our, to our, pro to our process. You know, and-, and No, and this so, is some great- I, I'm sorry? I'll keep going. Go ahead. Continue. Oh yeah. So 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 now the, the other the other uh, one that I would uh, just choose out right now is is empathy, which doesn't really you know if you think about <laughs> software developers and and engineers uh, and code 
uh, you know, an idea like empathy doesn't really uh, come through all that much, but, uh, or it's maybe not the first thing that you think of, but for us, it was, it was something we thought about all the time because our goal was to use our, our expertise and, uh, you know, our, our willingness to geek out on, on the technology and, 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 and to realize that most people in the world are not thinking about their products as a technology artifact. They don't care about the hardware or the software or the networking or anything. When people take the phone out of their pocket or out of their bag, they're just trying, they're trying to get something done. They have their goals in mind. And so when we were thinking about making the products, we wanted to get all of the technology out of the way so that people could focus on their goals and try to look at it from the perspective of yeah, regular people who uh, are going to be putting this, you know, bringing this product into their lives and, and trying to get through so that the technology would just melt away and people wouldn't think about it and instead focus on what was useful and meaningful to them. I love that. Does that mean hey, that Ken, you know, we, we got some questions here. Oh, I was just saying, hey, can, can we get some questions here on the live Q&A? Uh, one from Holger Mueller. It's a pretty interesting one. Uh, was there ever a product you wanted to build that still didn't get out there? And, and kind of what was it? like? Yeah, it's, it's you know, interesting question. You know, there are so many ideas. There are so, so many ideas. Uh, that's not coming up with great ideas is really never the problem. And it gets back to what I was saying about Stephen about focus is that, uh, you know, we chose just a few products to work on. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the number of ideas that we could, we could have possibly uh, worked on, you know, you know the, a lot of times they remained pretty, pretty nebulous. Um, you know, I, I could uh, mention to you products that we had in, in the labs that never really got that commitment, hmm. but unfortunately, yeah, you can't. they may be future Apple products. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so unfortunately, I'm going to need to talk around no, no that, hey, that, well, that well, answer well, more well, than I would really well, like. Sure, sure. So, Ken, you know, we'll the Kabuki the theater most... with Bill Schiller. <laughs> Some of the most successful venture capitalists, ones behind multiple unicorn exits, have said your book is an indispensable book of 2018, a must-read book. So obviously, their community that they're uh, providing a recommendation to are, are startup founders and, and, and entrepreneurs. Who did you write the book for? And, and a follow-up question, iPhone, iPad, autocorrect, you've, you've worked on things that have shaped humanity and how we use technology in the most awesome way possible. Now you've written a best-selling book. What's next? Like, what do you, <laughs> how do you, where's the encore? Where's the, where's the cleanup hitter? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't, I, to be, to give a quick answer to that, I don't know what's next. I, I really, really don't. A lot of people are interested in knowing what you're going to do. We're building to the Star Trek roadmap. Come on. We're building to the Star Trek roadmap. Well, you know, I, my whole career, my whole career, I, I have just, uh, I have just followed my nose. I've done what seems to make sense given the, uh, given, given the situation right in front of me. When I left Apple, I didn't know that really that I was going to write a book. Uh, that happened just in the, a few weeks 
after after I left Apple. Uh, I, I had a, a friend uh, who wrote a best-selling book of her own, Kim Scott, wrote a book, Radical Candor. We had her on our show. We had her on our show. Fantastic. We, we, we had her at her conference. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, she introduced me to her editor, and uh, we, we started having a conversation, and he said, well, maybe you should write a book. And it's like, well, yeah, I have been thinking about my, you know, my Apple career and why the products that I worked on uh, turned out as well as they did. Uh, and, and that I had some ideas about the, 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 the why and all the, all the W, you know, the what and the why and the when and the, you know, and then the how questions. And, and so that, you know, I wrote the book for people who love Apple products, mm. people who develop products on their own, are interested in creative and technical work, uh, people who are you know, interested in maybe getting a little bit of a, a look behind the scenes of how Apple worked during the Steve Jobs era. You know, and I thought it was important too in that, well, Steve has been gone for a number of years now and uh, his era is, is passing into history. And I was there, not so many people were, and I wanted to tell the story while I could still really remember, while it was still <laughs> fresh in my mind. So, so there were a number of audiences that I was trying to, trying to write for. Uh, and uh, to just really tell, get, tell a story of those times. That's awesome. That's true. We are here with Ken Cienda, former principal engineer of iPhone software for Apple and author of Creative Selection, a must read. Definitely check it out on Amazon. It's inside Apple's design process during the golden age of Steve Jobs. Follow him on Twitter at K-O-C-I-E-N-D-A. Thank you for being on the show. We got to catch up in Cupertino sometime soon. Thank you so much. The, uh, you terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. What? <laughs> you know, I gotta be, tell you. We should have done that for an hour. <laughs> I tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be fighting with imposter syndrome after talking to Ken. I, we, we gotta do more. We got. <laughs> invents all these amazing technology and writes a best-selling book just because somebody introduced him to a publisher. That's pretty cool. Well, we have another amazing uh, <laughs> writer and, and uh, thought leader and, and, and entrepreneur. We have um, our next guest. Uh, we have Avery Blank. Avery is the principal and owner of Avery Blank Consulting. Avery advises clients globally on business leadership, career, and policy and strategy. Uh, as a strategy consultant and women's leadership expert, Avery Blank uses her skills as a lawyer to help professionals and organizations, professionals and organizations, uh, advocates in, in terms of strategically positioning themselves for opportunities. As an impact strategist, there's another cool title. Like I love these. As an impact strategist, Avery will help individuals and organizations, one, grow your business and become an effective influencer, two, develop leaders and careers, and three, leave a lasting impact on society. As our previous guest, you can see how important that is in terms of shaping your career and your thought leadership. Avery contributes to Forbes, World Economic Forum, uh, a Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Fellow, board member with the American Bar Association of Legal Career Center, and many other important uh, work and affiliations. You can follow and learn more about Avery on the website, uh, averyblank.com, and absolutely follow Avery on Twitter at blank, B-L-A-N-K, Avery, A-V-E-R-Y. Welcome, Avery, to Disrupt TV. Great to be here, Vala. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Uh, you've done a lot of work um, really telling, helping other folks innovate. Let's start with you, right? How did you get here today? What did you do to re-innovate, reinvent yourself? Yeah, so 
I am a lawyer, but that's not exactly what I do at this point. But what I've done is I've kind of used my skills to do that. And to kind of give you a little bit of background a story. So I started law school in the fall of 2008. So what happened in 2008? Well, the recession. I remember in my torts class, my professor telling me that when, by the time you graduate, things are going to look very different. And they did. When I graduated in spring, two, spring 2011, you know, the law firms, the big law firms weren't hiring. And that's what usually lawyers do. They go into these big law firms, they get trained, and they go out and, you know, and, and they become lawyers. And they just weren't hiring. And so I kind of saw that a silver lining in that in the sense that I saw, hmm, I don't have to be a cog in a wheel. I don't have to do just what everyone's doing. I'm thinking about what it is that I really want to do. And why I went to law school is because my strong and core belief is in fairness. And I wanted to go to law school because I wanted to be a better advocate for, for people of society, but in particular because for, for women. And uh, so that's what you know, I learned to do. And a lot of the work after graduating from law schools, I worked in public policy. So again, this is about impacting communities, not just one client, but impacting, you know, your family, your friends, you know, big groups of people. And that's what I love to do. I testified before legislative committees on cybersecurity issues, on, uh, on um, emergency preparedness. I mean, you, you name it, uh, all, of those, all of those types of issues. And at that time, I was working in public policy. I loved it. I still do. But... I was ambitious and I had an entrepreneurial spirit and I felt like some of the skills that I, that some of, I was underutilizing some of my skills. And so I wanted to work more on a day-to-day basis on women's leadership. I wanted to be more involved on the strategic part of it. And so at the time I had a full-time job and I left it. And, and basically, you know, I, I, I left without a job lined up because for me, with that entrepreneurial spirit, I wanted, I knew at that time that, you know, I just had to do it. I had to figure it out. And so I did. I built my business and I found that I was able to utilize some of my transferable skills. Um, I relied on technology to really kind of build up my business with regards to a, a website. I built my website. I developed uh, all my social media presence. I mean, I had to learn what I didn't know. And I, you know, I figured it out. But all on top of that, even years before I, I went out on my own, I was building up a network. And so I had this huge community of people um, that over the years, I didn't necessarily know why I was reaching out to them, but I always love meeting people. And I love learning people's stories. And you know, years before, you know, I started my business, I just met a great group of people. And that's what allowed me to really kind of step into my own. Um, But also, you know, in addition to the networking, it's the writing. You know, interestingly enough, when I was really, really young, my parents who are both, you know, they're research doctors and academics. So they developed, they, they knew the importance of writing and publishing. And so at a very young age, my parents instilled in me, always write when you can publish 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 so again even before i left 
I started writing on, on platforms, smaller, you know, less recognizable platforms, but still credible ones, uh, you know, so that I slowly built up my book of work in terms of my book of articles, uh, but also, um, you know, that network of people knowing who I was. So I, you know, wrote articles for even profession, my professional association, the American Bar Association, um, so that eventually, you know, Forbes came and said, hey, you know, we want someone like you who's a doer that can help our readers, you know, understand what steps you need to take from point A to point B. And so bottom line, what helped me innovate was the fact that, you know, I actually used the transferable skills that I knew that I had. You know, I had the technology, the network, and also the writing. That's awesome. You know, I, 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 I follow Adam Grant's work, another influencer and, and academic and, and an author, best-selling author. And he talks about three types of people, uh, givers, uh, takers, and reciprocators. Uh, and, and I found people that are exceptionally good at networking. Um, it's all about giving. They're just there to educate and inspire. They do it without expectation. And over time, they create a voice that's trusted because they're not really looking for anything. There's no hidden agenda. All they're trying to do is educate and inspire. I saw a video of you talking about the importance of networking and giving. Can you tell us in terms of like advising or consulting men or women business leaders today, what do you tell them about the importance of networking and how it's critical in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy that you give when you learn something, you teach and you write and you stay relevant? Yeah, Adam Grant's great. So you're right. It's about givers, takers, and matchmakers. That's matchmakers. The that's, that's the term that he uses. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think one of the things, you know, that, I, that people hesitate when it comes to networking is the sense that sometimes they feel like they're, they're taking advantage of other people, uh, you know, because they, they want to get something out of it. But the reality is when you approach networking, um, it is really about learning about people, not so much about getting to a certain result, right? Because for anything, for you to accomplish anything, you've got to have a relationship with that person. So you've got to develop that foundation of trust. So, you know, to really kind of, you know, get into gear, you know, with networking, it's about curiosity. It's about asking questions, helping, letting them know that you're interested in them is really important, but also showing, you know, asking the very simple question, how can I be of help to you? Right. You know, because again, there's, especially for women, you know, we feel this, you know, kind of hesitation. Well, we're networking to try and get something for our careers. But if you go into networking thinking, well, actually I can help them, or, you know, at least maybe there's a way that I can help them. Then you feel a little bit, you know, you know, less uncomfortable about, uh, you know, going into a situation. So I always say, always ask, how can I be of help to you? Because sometimes they, the person may not know, but you know, the, the most important thing is letting them know that you're willing to be of help. And, and there's always an opportunity be, and, and especially for younger professionals, right? Because when you network, you know, sometimes you're looking for or networking with more senior professionals and you're like, well, how can I be of help to someone who has such experience and such wisdom? Well, you never know. I mean, they may come back and say, you know, I'm dealing with a millennial, uh, you know, on my team, you know, why is he or she doing this? 
Um, and so you can offer insight from your perspective, uh, you know, that can be really, you know, valuable to them. Sage advice. Absolutely. I agree. You know, you know what? There's a lot of reverse mentoring that's happening today. And I think people are looking for uh, getting a sense of what's going on. Right. I mean, I'd say, I mean, I don't know, Bala, I think I'm out of touch. <laughs> you know, I have, have a dozen, out, uh, I have a half a dozen reverse mentors, meaning uh, graduate students yep. that are at Salesforce and I regularly meet with them and I'm telling you, I have so many blind spots. You wouldn't, well, I guess that's why they call them blind spots. <laughs> you don't see them on your own. Yeah, you need, no, but yeah reverse but, mentoring is key. is key. But it takes, it takes a open professional and open company organization yes. to recognize the value of reverse mentoring. Because that is, that is so important because we think, you know, yes, there's this also stereotype that millennials think they know everything. We don't know everything, but we do know a lot in terms of when it comes to understanding the preferences of the users, clients, uh, you know, customers. And so why not leverage some of those, you know, insights to really, you know, enhance your business? But again, it takes that that mindset understanding that you can act there's actually talent and insight that you can tap into with some of the younger professionals absolutely absolutely everyone you meet knows more about you know what than you do. yeah go ahead Ray. yeah no definitely and we're definitely seeing that across um across all generations too i, I think there's a lot to be gained now question for you around uh what can people do to gain the most right um in terms of fostering those next generation of leaders and also addressing the issue um, there's a lot of questions about breaking this women's barrier around leadership, right? Uh, how do we break through that 20% women barrier? And um, in many cases, it's uh, around 20%. And I'll give you an example. I mean, we're in the enterprise tech business, right? And I, I just looked at a quick glance at the Fortune 500. And the number of women CIOs is something like 84 out of the Fortune 500, right? And that is like less than 20%, back to that point you're making. I mean, we try to get a quarter of them to show up to our event, but that's pretty big number, right, of a gap. Yeah, it is amazing that no, almost no matter what sector you look, it hovers around this 20%. I mean, you're talking from women, uh, you know, leaders in law to the number of women in Congress to the number of women, you know, in, in tech companies. Wow. It's like, it's mind boggling, you know, that somehow women, you know, there's this, sense that you know women leaders hover around this 20 20 percent and one of the things that i will say is that as an advisor to the wilson center's women in public service project one of the things that they're doing is they're making targets so they have this goal 50 by 50 so that by 2050 you know that there will be 50 percent of women who you know are are leaders in terms of making public policy decisions and you know in political leadership. So, so the bottom line is kind of having you know these tangible targets, you know, and so that that you can actually you know try and meet. Um, but it is it you know I I'm I'm waiting to write that article about you know because every you know about what is it with the twenty percent? <laughs> no, it's uh, so we had. Um... We had Whitney Johnson, who wrote the book, Disrupting Yourself. Um, she's written a number of books. She was a, a venture capitalist, partner with Clay Christensen, who wrote Innovator's Dilemma. And now she's uh, Thinkers 50, one of the most influential uh, management business leaders in the world. And she talked to us about um, her experience and her career 
and mentoring other women executives throughout her career. And she said that what she recognizes having a mentor is important, but having a sponsor is even more important. Someone that's willing to put their capital, their political capital on the line to advance your career and help accelerate your initiatives. What are your thoughts about men and women being more active in terms of sponsoring, uh, you know, uh, across not just uh, uh, gender, but, but ethnicity, age, and, and, and really an uh, equality diverse uh, a platform where sponsorships can help folks raise to, to, to a higher level throughout their career? Mentors are great. Sponsors are huge. That is really what is going to skyrocket your career. I mean, there's only so much that mentors can do, right? Because they're, you know, in, in the wings helping you, you know, position yourself in, in that sense. But it is someone else that's going to have even more power, more influence, more authority right. to really get you access to those opportunities. Uh, that, you know, is, is absolutely critical. Uh, you know, the issue now that, you know, that we're dealing with is this kind of Me Too movement, right? And, you know, there has been a lot of disruption, both good and bad, um, you know, with the Me Too movement. I mean, it's certainly, it's impacted both individuals and organizations. You know, when it comes to individuals, um, you know, certainly it has positively impacted women in terms of speaking up for themselves um, and, and really kind of acting as, as their own sponsors. Likewise, for men, it's empowered some men to, to, to be a better advocate and to be better sponsors for women. There's one little wrinkle to this, though, is that some, some men, however, feel a little, little bit more hesitant now to kind of mentor men, excuse me, mentor women or sponsor women um, because of they're not sure how their actions, their behavior, their language might be taken. Because as you've seen, you know, very recently, uh, you know, there are consequences, you know, to actions. And so what's interesting is that earlier this year, uh, Lean In and SurveyMonkey uh, came out with some research in terms of mentorship uh, with, with men and women. And it showed that male managers are three times now more likely to say they feel uncomfortable mentoring women wow. and twice as uncomfortable working alone with women. Wow. Now that's a significant, not three times. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's afraid now, about getting sued. I mean, they're, they're all, there's a lot of risk. Everyone's risk mitigating. Wow. Right. So. so now in the other, another data point is that senior men are now three and a half more likely to be hesitant about having a working dinner with a junior female colleague than a male one, and five times more likely to be hesitant to travel for work with a junior woman. Now, this really bothers me because sure. you need those touch points with power, and the reality is that many of the people who are in power are still men. So you need the ability, the women, to be able to have access to opportunities, and to be able to, be, to become the leaders that they want, they need those connections you know, with those men, but some men are now are hesitant uh, you know, because of what's going on in society. And that you know, can be really frustrating uh, you know, for uh, a woman's career. So what advice do you have to, I mean, you have, a, you have a male CEO of a very successful company as my co-host. What advice would you give to men 
senior executives in terms of how they need to just overcome this, this mental barrier because if they don't sponsor talent, um, you're not, you're not going to get to that 50-50 goal that we talked about. Yeah, first, it's all about questions. I'm asking women, what is it that we need to do? What, it, you know, what are the issues that you're facing? What is frustrating you? And it goes back again, Vala, that I talked about. It's about being open, right? The fact that you've got to be open to feedback, uh, you know, and that is really hard to do. You know, you probably, there are many companies and, and leaders who don't want to hear uh, you know, what these women might say, or even the men who re you see some of the, some of the situations uh, that are going, I mean, there are harsh realities in many, many uh, organizations. Now, some good things that have come about it is that more companies are implementing uh, more sexual harassment policies, as well as, um, you know, uh, reviewing pay policies. But still, you know, when it comes to sexual harassment companies, uh, policies, there's still only about half of organizations have policies in place. So there's still a lot that, you know, that needs to be done. Um, so the question, you know, is, has Me Too really, you know, disrupted? Yeah, a lot, but there's still a lot of disruption that needs to be made. Right, right. absolutely. Well, thank you. Well, we're here with every blank speaker. Oops, sorry about that. We're here with every blank speaker, impact strategist, women's leadership expert, and policy attorney. Um, and Forbes contributor. You can catch her on Twitter at B-L-A-N-K-A-V-E-R-Y. Thank you for being on the show. Happy Friday. Great. Thank great you. speaking with you, Ray and Vala. Thank you. You were terrific. Thank you so much. Okay. Wow. So, Ray, now we'll you catch know you in why. Philly or if you're out here. So, thanks now a lot. You, now you know why Fridays are our favorite time of the week. That was two extraordinary interviews. Uh, I, I, amazing. Wow. Well, we've got some excellent stuff coming up. Uh, one more episode before Connected Enterprise, October 22nd to 25th. Uh, next week's show, episode number 126. Who the heck do we have? <laughs> I think we're going to be crossing 300 guests uh, very soon. We have Scott Belsky, author of The Messy Middle. Uh, really enjoy Scott's Twitter feed and all his thought leadership. Jigade Yo, founder, executive chairman of Delphix and Alan Lepofsky, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, covering future of work and impact of emerging technology reshaping businesses today. So it's gonna be an amazing Friday next week. Ray, I know you're on the road, I'm on the road, uh, but you know, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Closing remarks, my friend. Hey, you know, happy to have everyone here. Um, check out what we're gonna be doing on December 10th. Uh, we've had some awesome guests here on Disrupt TV show. And uh, we're definitely planning for the 2019 season. So if you got some great speakers that you want us to know about and have them live here on Disrupt TV show, please let us know. So what about you, Vala? Listen, I just found out Ken is in San Jose. So December 10th, I think one of the original inventors of the iPhone should be invited. Uh, <laughs> so you could hang out with the with Waz with us. Uh, maybe yeah, we'll get them exactly. Together. Exactly. I'm sure they're close friends. So. No, closing remarks is, you know, it's tech conference season. Both you and I are going to be all around the world next few weeks. But uh, yeah, please send your recommendations to Disrupt TV Show on Twitter, who you want us to interview. Let us know who you want us to bring. And if we select, 
one of your suggestions and bring the person on the show, we'll make sure we'll give you kind of a VIP path through Disrupt where you can ask your questions and we'll have our distinguished guests answer them for you. So as a reward for rec uh, recommending guests, we'll make sure you have exclusive access to the guests we bring on the show. So thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the weekend and we'll see you next Friday. Bye everyone. See you next Friday. Happy Friday. Thank mm -hmm. you.